If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. I was actually sitting in the pub when the bomb went off. It's only a small one. And there was a wall between me and it, so I wasn't damaged in any way, but the ceiling came down. There was a lot of glass flying around. Very fine powdered glass. My clothes were never comfortable again after that. Got between the fibres. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Mervyn. Hello, Mervyn. Hello. It's always weird to say that we've already been talking and then suddenly I launch into it. It's particularly strange to do it with, with somebody who I know very well. The first question that I ask everyone is how do you know me? David is my stepson. Pretty efficiently answered that one. And the second question is what do you do now? I am teaching English in China. I'm back home for a holiday now. Wow, you're, you're, you're doing very well at being succinct. We've covered the first two questions much quicker than I normally do, I guess. We'll probably get back to some of those things later on in the conversation. But first of all, like the most obvious thing to the listeners, because they're listening about you so far, is that you have an Irish accent. Would you say you've got an Irish accent? Yes. Fading a bit. Yeah. But it's still there. I was saying to your daughter earlier on about how you have an Irish accent. She was saying she doesn't really hear the Irish accent in it anymore because she's heard such stronger Irish over in Ireland. Well, it's a long time since I've lived there. It's nearly 40 years since I've lived in Ireland. To me, you still sound very Irish because obviously <laughs> I'm not tuned into it. And I mean, I guess your Irish accent is something that I remember fondly in my youth. It's a nice voice to listen to. Did you leave Ireland when you were 18? No, I left Ireland when I was early 20s, after university. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Knew I didn't want to live in Belfast. Not because of the troubles, which were fairly heavy at that time, but because of the social and religious pressures. It wasn't a very tolerant place. I didn't feel at home there. Wanted to see somewhere different. Yeah. I originally came over to England for a, a summer vacation job and stayed on. What was the first job that you came over to do then? I was canning peas in a canning factory. Very boring. But at that time, there was a canning season for peas, very short, but I was working 60 hours a week, 
and at that time it was quite a lot of money. And did you, you worked in factories for quite a long time? Well initially I would work the summer season and then use the money I earned to see other parts of Britain. My summer season got longer and longer <laughs> as I could use to earning more money. So I was eventually working all year round and by the time I was 30 I thought I've had enough of this, it's not getting me anywhere. So I started studying again while still working, I was doing a, a part-time degree with the Open University just to get myself back into the mainstream again. Did I know you at that time, is that right? Yes, at the time I was with your mum, I was a couple of years into my university studies. I'm 30 now, now I'm 30 I can definitely say it's, you know, I've lived a lot of things. How was it going back into education at 30? Well, by that stage, by the time I turned 30 I thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, I need to find a way out. So I thought I'd brush up my academic qualifications and get back into the sort of job my intelligence and qualifications fitted me for. Yeah. And you studied uh, teaching physics, is that right, or just science? I was doing an open university degree which was modular. It included science, engineering, IT, lots of eclectic things. Okay, and then did you do a year's teaching after? I did a year at Bangor University, at a PGCE, to qualify me as a physics teacher. So that's what, because I remember you travelling on a, a moped to Bangor University and back, yes. when we lived in a small village in North Wales, and it, was, was it, a long, it wasn't a long motorway, this must be a no, misinformation I, in my head. I tried to use the back roads because the battery wasn't very good and the lights kept going off, God. so I didn't want to be on a main road. And you were, I mean, you were on a, a moped because you, I mean, that's only the only vehicle you can probably get away with driving, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, I, I've never had a proper driving license, in fact, I don't see very well, so getting a driving license was never a realistic prospect. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's always struck, struck me as a kind of impressive act to be travelling on that tiny moped for miles and miles from a university and back, you know. And the public the transport family. was bad in rural Wales. Yeah. There was no way I could get to university in time for the start of the day yeah. or get back after the end of it. So it was either a moped or not do the PGC. No, it was a practical solution to a problem, but I think it was quite a, I guess, a, a brave thing, I guess. I don't know if brave is the right word, but it, I was always sort of like, impressed by the commitment to doing that every day. I mean, I guess that's, that means that you really, really wanted to get that qualification. Yes, because I was doing the degree part-time, it took about five years. So I was getting old by then. I was in my late 30s, needed to find a way into a professional career. What was working in factories for, what, 10 years? I mean, I worked in libraries for about 10 years and I can 
I can say some, you know, moany type things about working in a library, but at the end of the day, it's a library, not a factory, and I'm sure that working conditions in those factories won't have been always entirely ideal for enjoying life. Yes, um, it was difficult to find people I could have a, a conversation with. Conversations tended to be tits and bums in the newspapers, sport, not much else. So I felt a little bit isolated from my co-workers, didn't really feel I fitted in there. Which was another incentive to, to get out, yeah, yeah. to find a more appropriate career. The other memory I have of that time concerning you and, and, and your work life was that we always had unmarked orange juice in the cupboards because you worked at Montreux factory at that time. Yes, they used to sell off juice that was either surplus or packaging was damaged or whatever. Yeah. So it was perfectly legal, but there was some, some strange orange juice and cans as well. Yeah, bit. that's right, of course. The cans were less popular in the household. <laughs> well, it was good. I, I always thought that was cool, and like, as an adult, I understand that, you know, working in a factory isn't that cool, but as, as a child, I was just like, wow, they can get <laughs> this magical juice that hasn't got even the advert, like, that hasn't got the packaging on it. That just seemed kind of amazing to me at the time, but <laughs> as it would to a child, I guess. So, you lived in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, I guess. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, you, I guess you grew up in the Troubles. Yeah, it was what I'd always known, really. My parents were obviously very, very alarmed if I came home late because every Sunday morning would be half a dozen bodies turning up. I was actually in a pub that was bombed at one stage didn't take the alarm seriously because we didn't actually think that pub would be targeted. It wasn't in the sort of area where pubs normally get bombed. And it was, I was actually sitting in the, the pub when the bomb went off. It's only a small one. But um, and there was a wall between me and it so I wasn't damaged in any way but the ceiling came down. There was a lot of glass flying around very fine powdered glass. My clothes were never comfortable again after that. Got between the fibres. How old were you when that, that took place? Around 20. And I mean, how, I mean, did it, did living in the proximity of danger, you know, how do you think that affected your outlook on, on things? I mean, it was just something I was always used to, even before the dates when the troubles started according to the history books. There was tension, there, were, there was violence, there were shootings, riots. It's, it's back on my earliest memories to take that in. Yeah. So it didn't seem a strange situation to me. No, of course, yeah. It was reality, I guess, but then you moved from Ireland to the UK, so you've lived in places where that hasn't been the reality. I mean, it's been the occasional threat in in England, like occasionally there was a, an IRA bomb. I'm not saying, not trying to make light of that, but that's nothing compared to what it was like in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, how was that contrast? 
Oh, it was completely different. I mean, there were bombs every day in Belfast. Some days there'd be 20, 30, 40. But there were bombs every day. We'd hear the bang. You could look and see the smoke. Because Belfast's in a narrow valley between two range of hills and the echoes you could work out from the echoes exactly where to look it became quite a fine art really I remember in Kings Lynn when uh, a chemical factory blew up because there was no echo I thought it was a small bomb right on the doorstep because the windows shook quite violently was high energy but actually it was a couple of miles away but a much bigger explosion than I thought. Yeah. How old were you then? You may have just said I was interrupted by a phone call. Uh, late 20s was when I was working in canning factories. And you say your earliest childhood memories were the troubles are kind of threaded into them. I mean what's yeah. an example of that? Well in the news there are always border incidents. Uh, the police were very heavily armed, armoured cars, heavy machine guns, and there were always incidents where there'd been someone had taken a few pot shots at them and they'd opened fire back with very heavy armaments. And they never found any bodies, but they always said they thought they had caused casualties and the bodies had been removed. It was very like General Westmoreland and his body counts in Vietnam. Always counting the bodies or counting the bodies that they imagined should be there, and always saying they were winning and getting it wrong. How did it make you feel about the state? I guess it seems to me that the troubles will have knocked your head against quite brutally two different institutions that of religion and that of the state. I mean, the obvious one that people talk about is religion, but how did it how did you feel in terms of the state? When I come from very strong religious background have rejected that totally. I see religious bigots, not just in Ireland but all over the world, not accepting that they can be wrong in any way, justifying the most awful crimes for religious reasons. Yeah. Uh, the state I'm very cynical about, I see it as corrupt, criminal. I don't see any prospect of Britain becoming a democracy. No. I had hopes of a democratically elected House of Lords, particularly when New Labour were claiming that they were going to change the country. I don't think there'll be a democratically elected House of Commons in my lifetime. It's 1951 was the last time when a government had the support of the electorate when Thatcher was destroying the country she had less than a third of the voters supporting her and less than 25% of the people entitled to vote supporting her and yet she was able to she had huge landslides in Parliament able to do the most appalling things yeah. Tony Blair able to commit war crimes, launch illegal wars, again with no majority support but a huge landslide in Parliament. 
I think there's no chance of Britain becoming a democracy or subject to the rule of law in my lifetime now. Well, that's a strong statement to make, and it's one, I mean, I, unfortunately, it's one I agree with. I mean, it's, I wish I didn't agree with it. I, would, I mean, I'm not sure it'll happen in my lifetime or, or even in the youngsters in the family's lifetime, but I hope it will. So when you first came up against these institutions, though, you were not able to kind of frame it in the, in the big picture, in the way that you just have, very eloquently. When you were growing up, the police weren't your friends, I guess. Would, would that be fair to say? I had no contact with the police. My strongest feeling about the police is when you're in traffic and you'd be behind a police Land Rover and there'd be two policemen with rifles strapped in the back doorway, leaning out and you'd be looking up the barrels of these guns where they were bouncing on their knees wondering whether they'd switch the safety catches off or not. It was... They weren't being deliberately intimidating but the situation was scary. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm at a demonstration and there are armed police officers, I'm scared if I go to Holland or Berlin and I see police walking around with guns attached to their uniform and that's nothing compared to the, the police you were meeting who were not just carrying around guns, they used them pretty frequently I guess. Yes, there were, I mean I remember one of the first deaths during the official period of the Troubles. There were riots in Belfast and they brought these armoured cars from the border patrols into Belfast with heavy machine guns and they had no experience of using built-up areas, no idea what they would do and there was a child killed in his bedroom by bullets that had passed through several walls and they were using these guns in built-up areas without any idea of their power. Fucking hell. Did you have experience of being in the police cells during growing up? Yes, I was... Um, I was held in a police station. Police told me it was nothing to do with it afterwards. But I'd been shopping in Belfast. It was a day after there'd been a, a particularly bad series of bombings suppose there'd been 20 or 30 people killed and the security forces were jumping about and I saw this army patrol go past me and um, heard some shouting behind me and just kept on walking didn't want to get involved I heard someone were shouting we're talking to you looked round and there was an army officer calling me over so I went over to speak to him and invited me to come with him to establish my identity and actually got quite a busy day planned I was supposed to be playing rugby that afternoon so I was hesitating thinking of saying no and he just nodded to the side 
and I looked across and there were um, six of six soldiers there. Four of them were pointing rifles at me. The other two had machine guns. So at that point I realised I was going with them whether I wanted to or not. And if I didn't argue I was more likely to be alive when it happened. So they took me to a police station and went through on the documents, thought to my own my own opinion that I'd satisfied them to my identity and then they they took me into a cell, locked me up. I'm not sure how long it was for, it seemed like several hours. So at that time the Northern Ireland Special Powers Act was in force, which gave the security forces the right to hold people basically forever if they suspected them of being involved in terrorism. They didn't have to have any evidence. They didn't have to go to a court. Just one person, one soldier or policeman had to say, I believe that he may be a terrorist and it could have actually held me forever. So I was getting jumpy in the cell and then the door opened and I thought they finally satisfied themselves, I can go now and I walked out and this soldier in the corridor and he actually marched backwards, took three or four paces backwards then um, unshouldered his rifle and pointed at me, you know, did the, the rifle drill present aim, knock the safety catch off. So I don't know whether this was supposed to be to intimidate me or whatever, but I was certainly very frightened, get back into the cell very quickly and they brought another guy in, locked us up again. So we were sitting staring at each other across the cell. He was a mess. His face was all bloody. He'd obviously been beaten up. And after we'd been staring at each other for half an hour or so, I decided to strike up a conversation. Just about the weather or something, or you know, just to sort we weren't feeling so uncomfortable. And he really didn't respond. He just glared at me. In retrospect, I think he probably thought I was a plant. Yeah. Especially if you weren't like as beaten up as him, then you sort of you look more, yeah. Um there didn't seem to be any microphones. It was a pretty bare cell. There was a a bare light bulb hanging from flicks in the ceiling. Nothing else. There could have been a microphone, so I presume he thought I was fine. But I mean, that's, I think that that anecdote of that moment in itself sort of says something about the nature of living in that kind of a, that the way that the state operated in Northern Ireland at that time compared to, say, my upbringing or whatever, in that the suspicion that there'll be a microphone in the, in the cell, that comes from 
knowledge of the way the state operates that a lot of people don't have access to, probably people listening to this. I mean, I've always been, I always say there's two kinds of people, people who feel protected when they see a police officer, and people who feel afraid. And I am definitely in the afraid camp, but nothing in my upbringing gave me reason to, 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 to be that, apart from the fact that I guess I was brought up some of the time by you and by people who were suspicious of the state. But well, I had no direct experience. When I first came over to, to England, obviously I was very suspicious of the police. And things like the Hillsborough disaster, I mean, we now know that it was the police who were mainly responsible for all those deaths. But the senior officer immediately spoke up and said, it wasn't us was drunken Liverpool supporters. Yeah. Now, if he didn't know his police were guilty at that time, he should have done. At that time, the police were exceeding their authority in support of Thatcher's economic policies. Yeah. They were setting up roadblocks to prevent pickets going to collieries. Now they didn't have any legal right to do that. They were exceeding their authority for party political reasons. The government of the day was giving them huge pay rises when those people who weren't losing their jobs were having their pay cut. And I think that senior policeman, when he lied about Hillsborough, he thought that the government would get him off the hook. Yeah. Since then, we've had this alleged war on terrorism. And what few civil rights were available in Britain have been eroded rapidly. If you answer a bus conductor or a traffic warden now, he is likely to complain. But I suspect I've been come in contact with a terrorist and the police will overreact. I think many dictators in other countries when they've been criticised for all their repressive legislation. I think it was the South African apartheid government said first that they would be happy to give up all their powers if they had the Northern Ireland Special Powers Act. They wouldn't need anything else. And the anti-terrorism laws have established that all over the country. Any uniformed authority figure feels that by accusing someone of terrorism he can get whatever he wants. Totally outside the law, totally outside any democratic framework, totally outside any moral framework. And I don't see things getting better in the near future. Well me neither. I think it's not necessarily the, the people but uh, the organizational structure that creates that kind of problem but I mean I think people who are like 
to have authority do gravitate towards wearing uniforms. I mean, there is both of those things, I guess. What I should say, I guess, is we are meeting in a pub. Uh, <laughs> the rest of our, our family group are on the other side, and we'll get back to them after we've done this conversation. And I'm drinking, I'm going to start drinking a half pint, because I'm just not able to, <laughs> to, to compete, of uh, Guinness. And we've, we've had a Jameson already, so... But that's, a, that's some of the nicer stuff that's come out of uh, Ireland, I guess, uh, <laughs> to, to offset some of the some of the story that we've been hearing. I mean, so when and apologies for being thrown by the Guinness drinking. I'm, I, I I enjoy Guinness, but I, I can't really drink a a lot of it. So <laughs> whatever that will do to my interviewing ability, we will see. <laughs> so, when you came over from Ireland, one of the things I know that you did before I met you is you lived in a tent on a roundabout, is that right? That's right. When I first came to England, the canning factory I worked for had a campsite. So I was living on a tent in a proper campsite with um, showers and toilets and the rest of it. When the calming season finished, I got a job in another factory freezing vegetables, which had a later season. So I took my tent from the, the campsite in the riverbank to the roundabout. It wasn't a proper campsite, but there were toilet facilities in the factory. It was open 24-7 because it was their, their busy season. So it didn't seem much different to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, again, it's a, a practical solution to a, a problem, I guess, uh, looking at the, the situation in hand and finding a, a solution to it. But I mean... Wasn't it? I mean, it must have been a little bit strange living in a tent in a, on a roundabout. I mean, it must have been had it was strange a big reactions. Roundabout. The traffic noise wasn't too bad. In fact, it was useful as an alarm clock to get me up in the morning. Yeah, again, a practical solution. I mean, it's not something that lots of people would consider. I guess. I mean, it's, again, it's like the moped. It's, it's finding these things that you, you know that do get you what you want. I mean, do you think that you're quite a practical person in that respect? I don't think many people would call me practical, but I think <laughs> outside the box. Yeah, and you do what needs to be done, I guess. Yeah, that seems to me to be the the factor in it. I mean, did you not get any kind of social reaction from living in that in that situation? I had a, a reporter from me local newspaper come round and interview me in my sleeping bag. <laughs> I'd just come off shift and I'd gone to bed and this guy came round to see me. Did he bring coffee or something? I mean, you better have done if he's coming around and bothering you. No, no, he didn't bring anything. I don't think it was a very prosperous newspaper. I think he was a very, very junior reporter. And it, was it elite, Was it? It wasn't legal, I guess, to be living. I guess you were kind of a squatter. Would that be right? Well, 
presume so. I'm not sure the legal situation. Obviously, the, the roundabout was owned by the local council. Yeah. They didn't make any attempt to evict me or contact me in any way. So I didn't see that as an issue. Mm. Well, that's fair. It seems like a, a very, like I say, an elegant solution to a problem, but not one that, that everyone could get behind, I guess. But I, I like the idea of it. So, you studied to be a teacher. Why teaching? It was a job that didn't need experience. They just were just looking for academic qualifications. At that stage, the experience I had wouldn't have been much use for the sort of job I wanted. Yeah. So teaching would just take my academic background into account and nothing else. So it was a job that was available at the time. Right. And you, you taught science, physics mostly, would you say, or is that, I don't know, I mean, physics, mostly physics. physics is what you're, is that what you're interested in, what you know, I mean, what would you say? Or? Um, when I was studying to be a teacher, they were offering a, a bursary for people trying to teach physics, and not much else, that was the first one, so it was more better for me financially at the time. Yeah. In fact, it turned out to be a useful career move because there's always been a shortage of physics teachers. Yeah. And um, as I got more into physics, I enjoyed the subject more and more. Yeah. And I mean, so you you taught you taught when we lived in the same house. You were teaching in Coventry. And you, you taught in a boys' school, didn't you? Yeah, right. That was quite a hard school to teach in, was it? Yeah. Uh, Coventry, at that time, had a very large car industry. So, all the parents of the, all the fathers of the boys would say, I left school without any qualification and I've done all right. So the boys weren't encouraged to study. They believed at that time that they would leave school, go into the car factories, make a lot of money. In fact, all those car factories have gone now, but yeah. they didn't realise that at the time. Academic studies weren't high on their priorities. And it must have been tough trying to teach those boys at that time, I guess. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I mean, it's a strange. I've always thought it's sort of strange that it must have been strange for you teaching, you know, adolescent boys, and then going home and me being around about eleven, I guess, twelve during that time. I mean, it must have been kind of you go home and then <laughs> there's your work at home. I guess. I wasn't always very sociable when I got home from work. Well, yeah, I guess it was a. And then you did that teaching, and then you made a decision to. I mean, you probably taught in other places in between, but more recently you've made a decision to teach physics in other countries. Yes, well, I was teaching in London. I was head of physics in a school in North London. Again, a boys' school just worked out that way. There was a change of head teacher. There were a couple of very difficult 
year groups coming up and it seemed that the senior management team was losing control. By that stage I was coming up to the age where I could retire. So I, I was thinking in the back of my mind that I don't want to be here for the rest of my working life. I want to look around for other things. So I went to Dubai to teach physics there. Very different environment. The kids were better motivated. Behaviour was a lot better. Uh, unfortunately, just at that time, the economy of Dubai went down the plug. Right. So there were lots and lots of expats just going to the airport, leaving the 4x4 with the keys and the ignition, getting on a plane, not coming back. So the number of students in the school was going down, wasn't going to be viable in the long term, so I, that job ended. I liked the idea of working abroad. I didn't want to teach in London again. I've been traveling to other countries, mostly in Asia. For By that time, I'd been traveling for about 10 years to Asia every summer, spending five, six weeks traveling to different countries. I enjoyed seen those countries and I was looking for work in Asia initially as a science teacher but in preparation for retirement I have done a course in teaching English several years before that and I found there were more opportunities teaching English particularly in China yeah. where English is now a compulsory subject from the age of about 10 up to the age of 19. As well as that, there are many, many adults wanting to learn English as the Chinese economy grows and trades more and more with the rest of the world. So, I, I'm enjoying teaching in China very much. The students are very, very receptive very very polite they enjoy having Western teachers uh, partly because there's more interaction in the training that Western teachers have and they they do like to know about the world outside China very few of them have travelled much even within, within their own country. So they like to feel some contact with the world outside. And I think they would like to travel and see other countries when they grow up, which is becoming more popular, yeah. more, more, more possible Very much as more the, possible, yeah. their economy expands. And I mean, how is like how do you find China? Because I mean, it's, it, again, it's a. I mean, this is a, 
you know, if, if we have bureaucracy here, Christ knows what China must be like, you know, I mean, it's... I've had very little contact with the bureaucracy. Chinese people have been very helpful. Um, they're sometimes a bit strange. And one of the oddest experiences I had was I was walking through the central square, the, the city I work in. Now, I've heard there are other Westerners working in one of the universities, but I haven't seen any other Westerners in the year and a half I've been working there. So I'm obviously a bit of a novelty. This middle-aged woman came up to me and gave me a baby. Hold <laughs> this. Well, said something in Chinese which I assumed to be an older and she got her mobile phone out and she wanted to take a photograph of me with the baby <laughs> which you know if you look at a child in London you'd be considered a pervert or whatever yeah but in China this woman wanted to have a photograph of <laughs> I presume grandchild because she was quite elderly yeah with the Westerner so there are lots and lots of moments like that which seem bizarre but are are well meant I never feel threatened in China if you're out in the streets in the UK at night at a weekend or on the Saturday afternoon when football supporters are out. There's a lot of tension there. There's never that in China. People are much more welcoming and society seems to be much more civilised. Fair enough. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never been to China. I mean, the... I guess the kind of... From the, the little I know of China, obviously I know it's an ex or current... I don't know if they've kind of completely worked that through communist country. I mean, it's 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 embracing capitalism at the same time as being a kind of dictatorship originally. Uh, oh, it's very much a dictatorship. The Communist Party has absolute authority. The people have no illusions about the, the Communist Party. They see it as a route to wealth and power. They would like to be in an official position themselves right. because of the wealth that would bring, but they don't feel any affinity with the government. They can see that it's corrupt, they can see that it doesn't respond to the feelings of people. But China's got 7,000 years of history. Yeah. None of it democratic. Yeah, yeah, sure. Before the communists, you had the warlords, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, who were just as corrupt. Japanese occupying half the country, very, very brutally. And the various imperial dynasties had no contact with normal people, apart from screwing them for taxes. So they don't see the communist government as very different from any government that they've had before. Sure. No, no, sure. I mean, then that's a, a very 
very interesting analysis of, the, of, of their histories. It, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of true. I mean, I, I'm listening currently to a history of Genghis Khan's Mongolian invasions. I mean, the second Khan, I think. The complexity of the politics then, you know, going forwards in China has been pretty complex, but you're right. It's never been a situation really where there's not been people making decisions on high for the masses, I guess. In fact, the Mongolians were, in a way, they, they, they were a different kind of thing um, because they were completely, completely military <laughs> culture. Which again, again, culturally speaking, like all I, all I know is this culture and how, you know, how it feels to live within this culture. But it, the conception of China, I tend to find in the West, is everyone's afraid of China because they're going to be the people in charge but everybody kind of still writes them into this kind of very narrow box of uh, you know co communist dictatorship and the Chinese gymnastics. people are very patriotic yeah um, they hate the Japanese passionately because of recent history but they also feel the humiliations imposed on them by the West over the last century or two but they they don't feel animosity towards individual westerners they see um, China coming back to its traditional position uh, for 18 of the last 20 centuries China was the number one economic power yeah. and they see them as coming back to the natural position again. Their territorial claims would seem to us as bizarre to the Chinese people are just restoring the situation before the humiliations from the West. They want to restore Chinese borders to what they were before the humiliations, which probably explains the, their claims to the whole of the South China Sea, which is causing problems at the moment. So they see themselves as a great country, which had a temporary blip of hard times, a couple of centuries is very short in terms of Chinese history. They see, see themselves as being, restoring their rightful position again, which appears to the rest of the world as being very aggressive. But if you think of an American carrier task group in the South China Sea. That is a real threat to China in their eyes. And if you look back in history, when the Americans had a nuclear threat in the Caribbean during the Cuban crisis, they reacted very, very strongly. And the Chinese were reacting the same way. Yeah. I mean, my instinct is to say a plague on all their houses, you know. I'm not too keen on states, full stop. It sounds like it's more pleasant, at least for you, living in China at this moment compared to living in the UK, I guess.
Teaching in London was hard work. I was spending more time lion taming than teaching. Yeah. I don't have to do that in China. Yeah. I can spend all my time teaching. Yeah. I've got cooperative students who are always very pleasant. They like a laugh and a joke, just the same as Western kids. But their parents have made it very clear that they're expected to learn, expected to work hard, and expected to behave. And I don't think that always happens in London. Do you think that's a good thing, then, those values being imposed into the children? It's good from a teacher's point of view. The other side of that coin is that they don't show much initiative. I mean, the way they're taught involves learning great chunks off by heart. They get very little sleep. My first school was a senior high school, and they were in school six and a half days a week. They were in class before seven. The day students went home, I think it was something like seven in the evening, and the boarders had supervised prep in the classrooms until 10 o'clock at night. They had homework when they got home. They were always exhausted. So, I think the Chinese education system can learn from the West as well. Yeah. But Chinese kids are much more pleasant to teach. Yeah. I mean, I guess, so before we close up, I guess I should address the fact that you are my stepdad and that you were one of the people who brought me up. The time we shared in a house wasn't always the most pleasant uh, experience for everybody in that house. I think uh, a Coventry house was pretty much uh, a doomed ship. It was quite a hard it's thing. It's not to a relaxing place to live. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. But I mean, I think before that hard time, you treat you know you were you were a, a great. I've been thinking about you know my, my earlier years and you as initially as a stepdad, and I, I think we had some great times in North Wales. I just don't know really what happened when we moved to Coventry. But I mean, I guess. When I was, I don't know, 17, I think, I wrote a play based around our Coventry experiences and I, I gave it to you to read, to everybody involved to read. And, I mean, I've always wanted to say, I mean, maybe I didn't say it at the time, but after you read that play, you came to me and talked to me about it and, you know, uh, you made your, you know, you apologised for your side and I apologised for mine and we, we, we came to an understanding and I, I thought that was a really big thing of you to do as an adult, you know, because I, you know, you didn't necessarily owe me anything to do that and I just like to sort of thank you for, for that and yeah, I mean, do you think, I guess the biggest question that I have as an individual regardless of if there's a microphone is do you think that your upbringing influenced the way that you were as a stepfather? Yes. I was brought up in a very intolerant society. And 
It's taken me a long time to live that down in a way too. I'm not sure I've done it yet. There's still some time till I react instinctively due to my upbringing. I've, as I've got older and learned more, I've tried to reduce the influence of the intolerant society I was brought up in. Yeah. Haven't always achieved. No, but I think that's a but that's a great thing to be attempting to do to rise above or not above because that's sort of that's got a value judgment. But to, to improve yourself is something that I am certainly trying to do as a as a person. I'm I'm sure that you will understand what I'm getting at when I say that I've inherited some things that I have to deal with and. Uh, myself you know from I guess from my upbringing but also it's hard to say isn't it the older I get the, you know nature nurture who, who the fuck knows I think it's admirable to try and improve on that and I think you know I was yeah I just like to say thank you I guess for for that apology and for the things that you did for me you know that parents do and you know you did those things and I uh, you know, want to acknowledge that again. So thank you. Thank you. The big thing I didn't talk about that I was going to talk about was rugby, I guess. I mean, to leave on a slightly positive note, I guess. I mean, you played rugby. As, yeah. or, I mean, and you like you like rugby as a game. I mean, what, why, why rugby? I don't really know. I think it was the only sport I could play. I don't have binocular vision. Right, yeah. That's so you see in two dimensions, is that right? See in two dimensions. So I was never safe to drive. Rugby had a physical element which didn't. You could be a rugby player without having very much to do with the ball. So the, the game appealed to me in that way. What does that mean? Do you mean, you mean just like uh, running, bashing into the other people, I guess? Was that, was that a big part of it? I was a very good tackler. Uh, that was probably <laughs> the strongest part of the game. And I guess they gave you the ball and they could get you to run. Is that, um, would that be one of the things you were... If they tried to give me the ball, I dropped it because I couldn't see <laughs> the ball in three dimensions. I couldn't work out exactly where it was. So you were just a blocker, really? You were there to stop the other team getting the ball? And, uh, it's a, it's, it's it wasn't as simple as that. I played my best rugby at university. We were always playing against bigger teams. So they won all the scrums, all the line-outs. So we could only get the ball in broken play. And my job was to smash up the play. <laughs> I can, I think I can, I think I can appeal, I, I can see the appeal and I'll understand the appeal of rugby a little bit more than football, I think. I mean, when I played rugby at school, it was, uh, I don't know, I didn't play rugby very often, but I did enjoy the opportunity to, uh, physically manhandle the people who were bullying me about feeling morally compromised so I enjoyed that element of it although one time I, I got in trouble for punching somebody repeatedly in the face while the PE teacher was standing above me because I also can't see that well I, uh, I didn't know that that was happening so I guess there's that, that, is that there is that problem if you can't see very well that when you're fouling someone you can't know if someone can see you or not but you probably didn't foul people <laughs> There are better ways than punishing people. <laughs> yeah, I needed to learn the good ways to, to foul in rugby. 
So the last question I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? Which is a strange question. Some people have interpreted this in a much wider or bigger way than I thought. And they've talked about things that they want to promote or uh, ideas or concepts or whatever. And other people have just said no. So don't feel the pressure either way. But that's the question. Do you have anything to plug? <laughs> At a time of life now where um, and I never was good at advertising myself or anything else and I don't think I'm going to start now. No, fair enough. The last thing that I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye audience. <laughs> goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted, have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.